You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will love rock So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, hello. Welcome to the GFR show. I'm Lisa Cherney. I'm your host. I am so glad that you are here. And if this is your first time with us, you're in the right place. And if our guest today brought you over to our world, you are in for a treat. You're going to love our conversation that we're having today. And also we have 110 other episodes that really talk about the struggle and the trauma that many of us mission-driven entrepreneurs apparently have to go through in order to be a stand for our work and our mission in the world. And so if that's you, you're not alone. You're going to love it here. So I usually kick off our shows with a question that relates to what our guest will be sharing. So here's your question for today. Do you ever feel like you are missing your opportunity or that you should be further along? I know for me, when I took time off to to be a mom, to be a full-time mom and really take a break from growing my business. This is back in you know, 2007, 2008. I just felt like everybody was passing me by. Everybody was, you know, so much further along than me. And I saw fairly quickly within five or seven years that I quantum leaped, you know, that my growth, my spurt, my success came in the divine right time for me and that it can happen that way. And today's guest, Margie Feldhun, is such a great example of this because as you heard from the title of this episode, she is a child of hoarders. She has had a significant challenge with mental health starting from when she was the age of 11, and she shares candidly about that in our interview. And today, y'all, she is a Forbes featured podcast host. She is a multi seven-figure CEO. She is a certified neurosomatic coach. She is a rock star and just a delight. And you will quickly hear from this interview and how she just how articulate and authentic she is, that she is pretty freaking mentally healthy (laughs) now, you know, and has all, you know, the tools like and she called herself. She's rock solid now. And I am so excited to share her with you. And, you know, this company that she is the CEO of, she was their first employee. She started out working $15 an hour. And within two years, she became 50% owner. So there's no time wasted in her world and probably not in yours either. So hopefully this serves you. And she also has this really cool podcast called We Get It, Your Dad Died, where she really uses her own experience of losing her dad to suicide to transform the conversation around grief and show the transformation that is possible on the other side of loss. And of course, y'all know that I am a grieving entrepreneur. My mom passed away in May after a year and a half of caregiving and, you know, all kinds of things in my experience around that. So we do definitely have a moment around the profound teacher that grief is and and what we feel like it means to us. So I think you're going to love this conversation. And she 
shares candidly about growing up in a house where she was afraid to bring people and the impact that's had on her and how her wife now loves to clean. Her wife is a minimalist and she's a maximalist. And so it's just really an enlightening, fun conversation. So without further ado, I can't wait for you to meet Miss Margie Feldhoon. Margie, welcome to the GFR show. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. I am I am excited to have you and and we don't know each other. Isn't that fun? <laughs> it's so fun. It's I love those like synchronistic connections that happen. Me too. And shout out to Rhonda Renee, who like was our like cosmic matchmaker. She had heard your podcast or knew about your podcast. We get it. Your dad died. And, you know, at the time that we connected, I was, I mean, I'm still in the throes of grieving my mom, but it was like every podcast, every podcast episode that I was releasing, like every other one was about my mom. And she's like, you two need to meet. So we had a love affair via Facebook Messenger audio. <laughs> yes. The most beautiful story. <laughs> I I, th- I think it was. And I feel like mm-hmm. when you were leaving messages, you were walking. I can like hear yep. felt like you were outside walking. So I, I just definitely felt like we were bonding. <laughs> definitely. So, you know, I know some of your story, obviously, because that's what inspired me to have you here on the show. And I know that I'll get to know you a lot more. And I'm I'm really excited to do that. So let's start in elementary slash middle school when you were put on medication for depression. I can't even imagine the context of that. So share with us that part of your life. We'll start there. Yeah, I had a really, really hard time as like a young person, like middle school age and then through high school. And yeah, I was put on medication at 11 because I was depressed and very, very anxious. And my parents were both on medication for depression. So I think they were kind of like, why not? It was a very dark time. It's interesting because it's so, you feel like a different person, right? So like now I'm here. And so it's interesting to try and think back to what that was like, because I can remember it, but it feels kind of far away from where I am now, but it was a very dark time. I felt I had a lot of panic. So I had panic around different things and I had OCD, which I didn't know. And so I had a lot of invasive thoughts and a lot of like cycling, ruminating thoughts. I had a lot of fear about my mom or dad dying, like a lot. That was a big theme of my like panic and anxiety. And I had a lot of panic and anxiety around my homework. It was really... So the thing that can happen for people who have experience with OCD and panic is it will just sort of fixate on different things that are sort of random. And so for a while, I had this fixation on homework. And I was so scared that I would forget my homework and I would like triple check. I think at one point I like, I was like 11 and I like called my teacher at home to like confirm I got the homework right. And they were like, yeah, like, why are you, why are you calling me? And it was so extreme. Like I couldn't relax. And I would need like a lot of reassurance from my mom when she would go on work trips, I would be like so terrified she would die. So it was not an enjoyable situation. I was very, very miserable. And it was very hard to connect with people because I was struggling so much with these serious mental health issues that the majority of 11-year-olds in my class probably could not relate to. And they don't have any context for it. So even if they were struggling, you know, that was my first question was like, how did you get to the place where you were supported in this way to even have a diagnosis and go on medication? And so sharing that your parents were both on medication explains that. But at, at that age, like, I, in fact, I think it was in middle school that my daughter, so my daughter's 17 now, and I think it was in middle school when she first asked about therapy because the kids, some kid was talking about therapy and she was like, do I need therapy? Is everybody in therapy? What's therapy? You know, and I'm in California, everybody's in therapy, but which they should be. <laughs> yes, they should. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's, yeah. I mean, even the 11 is, is young to have a context like that, my mind, like I can't trust my mind or, you know, that there's things going on beyond my control. 
Yeah. I do think it was good that like they tried to give me tools. I don't think that the tools were ultimately helpful. They kind of made it worse. And like, I'm not going to make a sweeping statement about medication in general or medication for children. But for me, going on antidepressants was not good for me. And I think that while therapy is amazing and I think like really important, I don't think that there was enough looking into what's going on, like what's going on, like why is this kid having all these problems, what's going on at home and stuff like that. And I think a more holistic approach would have been better, but at the same time, like everybody's just doing the best that they can. Yes. Yes. You know, when looking into therapists that work with teens it's all about the parents, you know, not all about it, but it's predominantly about the parents. And like, so that must've felt really, must've felt helpless in a lot of ways that nobody was really asking like the real questions about what was going on at home. Yeah. And I think the hardest thing, and you kind of alluded to this too, is like, really not knowing what was going on. Like most of my perspective on what was going on at that point happened for me in the last few years, like as I've learned more about nervous system dysregulation and childhood emotional neglect and OCD. And so at the time I didn't know any of that stuff. And so I just thought I was like, a bad person or like a messed up person. Like there's so much shame. I think when you don't have any vocabulary to understand what's going on, let alone tools to deal with it, it just feels extremely hopeless. And it feels like a character flaw. Yeah. Wow. And, and to have, I mean, it's like already middle school sucks, you know, like just, you know, I just, I remembered the shit show of like compounding circumstances that were going on for my daughter from like, obviously her body changing to like girl, you know, girl fighting and then like boys entering the picture. And then, you know, you're getting into the academics where it really counts for college just before high school. And like, there's just so much. We were, in fact, we were just talking with my daughter last night. She was in a charter school that went up to eighth grade, but at sixth grade, she was hating reading, thought she sucked at math. There was all this she hates. She had so much homework. She couldn't like even deal with it. So we, 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 I found that there was this private school that didn't do homework. that didn't give kids homework. And we're well, checking that out because this is ridiculous. And so we did pay for private school for one year in eighth grade. So guess it was seventh grade. So in eighth grade. And we still feel like it was the best decision we made because there was only 12 people in her eighth grade class and only, I think, six girls or five girls, something like that. So still the same problems, but just not like (laughs) like the magnitude that it would have been, you know, and she fell in love with reading and found out the truth was that she was really good at math and like so much changed in that one year. So like, you know, the point being like, it's such a formidable time particularly for girls, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's a best case scenario. It's still pretty bad. But if you have like issues at home and mental health issues that separate you even more kind of from your peers, even just in your own mind, that's rough. I love, I love that she went to a school with no homework. I can't believe how much stress and homework we had. And in retrospect, I didn't need any of that to succeed. So it was just like, torturing you and ruining years that should be fun. Like you don't have to pay taxes yet. Like this should be like a joyful time. And it's so high stress. I actually ended up transferring in ninth grade from the private school I was going to, which was pretty academic and sports focused, which I am not an athlete and pretty high pressure to a charter school where I graduated in a class of like 15 people. And it was like that high school experience was incredible. That's great. I know it's it's just so freaking important. It's so freaking important. And I and I remember like I feel like my job for my daughter is to help her chill out. 
like, it's so funny. Like I'm the one saying like, don't worry, don't do that assignment. You just like email the teacher and like, you don't have to do it. Spend five hours. Just like, just do the minimum, you know, like, I'm just like, that's like, I'm, I'm the one who's like, you can just stay home tomorrow. Just sleep in. It's like going to be okay. You know? So I feel like I have done my job and that I have chilled her out. Like she does not worry as much. She isn't as much of a perfectionist. And like, I'm like, oh good. You know, <laughs> my job is done because it is, there's just so much inherent stress. So did you wind up going to college? What did you do after high school? Yes. I went to college more because like, it never occurred to me not to go to college. I think because just like everyone in my family went to college, both my parents, my mom had a master's degree and both my parents also went to law school. That's where they met. And so I just thought like, that's what you did. Like you went to college and then you had to go to grad school. And so I didn't really want to go to college. I don't know that I was necessarily ready to go to college, but I did. I went and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I ended up double majoring in Latin and studio art and which <laughs> gives you an idea of how directionless I was. And my mom, <laughs> my mom loved to say that, that by double majoring like that, I doubled my chances of being unemployed. <laughs> so. Yeah. Latin and studio art is diverse. I just feel like you're a diverse, you're very eclectic and, you know, have lots of interests. That's how I see it. That's true. Yeah. And I, I really didn't, I didn't do either of those because I wanted to do them necessarily professionally. There was a time where I wanted to be a professional artist, but that was not for me. But I just like, I, I had a really great Latin teacher in middle school who made it really fun to learn Latin. And so I just got really into Latin and then I just wanted to continue it because I enjoyed it and kind of the same with art. Awesome. And how was your mental health in college? Bad. I mean, I would say my mental health at most times in my life, except for, you know, the past however many years, like since my mental health improved a lot after my dad died and I was forced to like deal with all my stuff. But before then I would say it was like varying levels of not great. In college, I had definitely some issues. I was pretty underweight. And so I was like passing out and which I think was partly like not eating enough and was partly nervous system regulation, like going into a flop response, but I didn't make the connection. Cause I was like, I don't feel like I'm having a panic attack. I'm just like passing out. I was smoking cigarettes. I was binge drinking. I was using drugs. I was recreationally using very hard drugs like heroin. I was never addicted to heroin, but that's not really something to play around with. And I actually had at a party, I overdosed on heroin and died basically and was like blue. And luckily they have drugs that they can like resuscitate you if they catch you early enough from an overdose. So I didn't die, but it was not great. So you died in college is what I'm yes, hearing. I did. <laughs> Holy shit, girl. Is it Narc, 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 Narfan? Narc? I seen it on the cop shows that I watch. Yeah. I just remember like waking up in the ambulance and the, the EMT was really, really nice. And I was, he was like, we gave you something to wake you up. And I was like, was it a shot to the heart of adrenaline because of Pulp Fiction? And he was like, that's what everybody says. No, that's <laughs> not real. And I was like, okay. And then I like kept throwing up. What year were you when that happened? I think I was like 19, maybe 19 or 20. Did that change the course of your college experience at all? Well, it's interesting. So I had that happen and I tried to keep it from my parents because I didn't understand how health insurance worked. <laughs> <laughs> so they did find out, which was not, not good. And like, understandably, they were very concerned. And it was interesting because that wasn't the wake up call. Like I didn't change my behavior at all after that. I kept drinking really heavily. I did heroin again. And it was actually the time I did it after that. And I distinctly remember I was walking around the college campus. It was like, I've been up all night 
it was like starting to get light out probably like 5 a.m. And I remember there was like these trees with these benches around like built-in wood benches around them. And I sat down and I was like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Like, I just literally died from this and I don't even care enough to stop. And that was, and then I never did it again after that. Like I had that moment and I was like, this is insane. Yeah. 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 I, I'm so intrigued by the college part of your story because I have such vivid memories of struggling myself in college. And that's when my eating disorder, which was at the time compulsive overeating, really reared its head. I mean, you know, people joke about the freshman 15. I think I gained like the freshman 50. And then I went on a liquid diet, of course, you know, like that summer. I think it was that summer. And I came back to school, like completely, you know, in a different body, got all this attention for it, of course. And then like, didn't get to the root of, of any of what was, you know, making me use food to deal with my feelings. And so started to gain the weight, but, but my ego was like, I don't want to be one of those people that just gains it all back. You know, that statistic that they kept quoting me when they put me on this, that's not going to be me. And so I did find my way to Overeaters Anonymous and the 12 step, you know, program, which I was a part of for many years. And that completely changed the course of my life because that gave me my spiritual foundation. You know, I didn't, I didn't know about intuition, which is shocking because it's like, like what I live and breathe now, you know, I didn't know about, you know, any of that stuff. And I didn't have a relationship with a higher power source or anything like that. So I have such vivid memories of that young person. So I, yeah. Yeah. And I can definitely relate to like binge eating and eating disorders also have a lifetime of those starting at like young, like middle school was kind of when everything kicked off like early middle school. So I can definitely, it was like, I I think I just like every dysfunctional coping mechanism you could have. I was just, and I'm kind of an extreme person, which serves me really well now um, as an entrepreneur. But when you're not in a good place, being someone who's extreme and goes hard can get you in a really bad situation as like you found too. Yes, for sure. And you were self-harming also in that middle school, high school timeframe. Yes. And I actually, for me, think that had a bit to do with being put on that medication. And they have found some correlation with putting really young people on those types of antidepressants and suicidal tendencies and self-harm. Yeah. I mean, that makes, it makes total sense. It's amazing. The mysteries of the brain chemistry. And I, so I've been on a and medication for anxiety. I'm not right now, but I have been. And I just, I remember how like obsessed I was with taking or not taking medication and what mm-hmm. it meant you know, it was like such a big deal at the time. And, you know, I get the part like, you know, oh, I couldn't deal with it myself kind of thing, you know, and then part just like, I don't know, stigma, you know, all of that. And, you know, and I wound up, thankfully, my path was to only be on it for, I don't even actually remember how long, maybe a year or two or something like that. And then being able to transition to, you know, transition in a lot of ways so that that wasn't, you know, what I was leaning on, but thank God for some of mm-hmm. those medications for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like an important lesson is everybody's so diverse. Like there's so much difference between our nervous systems and our brains. And so it really is about like finding what works for you. And for some people, I totally agree. Medication is an absolute lifesaver and is a really amazing thing that helps them get their life back. So you mentioned your parents met in law school. I don't know if that means that they were both lawyers or not. Sometimes they do practice law. So were you in a situation where things looked great on the outside, but were like a shit show on the inside when it came to your family? I think so. I mean, I don't know if it looked great, but (laughs) like, (laughs) I mean, because my parents are kind of wacky, love them so much, but they were... Yeah, they were both lawyers. My mom was particularly successful. She was a federal prosecutor. She became the first female U.S. attorney for the state of Rhode Island. Wow. And so, yeah, 
I think. And I was, you know, I went to private schools. Like I do think it probably, it looked a lot better than it was because people have commented to me now, like after what happened with my dad have been like, we had no idea. And like, it was like, okay, I believe you. (laughs) But like, so the other thing that was going on, so my parents are dealing with their own like unprocessed trauma and mental health issues. And then I'm like, popping off because I'm like such an extreme person anyway. And I'm really sensitive. So it's like, I'm just like, you know, doing what I was doing. And my parents were also hoarders. So the house is like a total catastrophe. And so I have like all the shame about this. So I like never like want to let people in the house. It There was a lot. So yes, I think it was. And actually there's a lot of hoarders who are highly successful and exactly what you're saying. It looks nice on the outside. Like they're clean, they're well-kept, like they're successful. They're really smart. Like people don't suspect what's actually kind of going on behind closed doors. Wow. That's so interesting. I'm just flashing to a childhood friend that I had where I feel like that was part of what was going on in her home. And when I would come over, we would clean. Aww. I remember like cleaning the kitchen with her. Yeah. Yeah. I think the only reason that I was able, like that I, that she let me into her house is because our parents were friends. And so my parents had been to the house. Yeah. 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 I I love children of hoarders. It's a very unique experience. Yeah. So are you like super neat or how do you even find your like normal? Good question. Tell me about that. I I think I'm pretty actually average because yes, it's like with children of hoarders, often they go in one of two directions. Like they are totally disorganized in a hoarder because they just never learned how to clean up after yourself or they're like insanely neat. And I definitely have gone through periods. So if it's a period where things are falling apart, like I was very, I got very compulsive about cleanliness right after my dad died. But for the most part, I'm pretty well balanced. I like things to be very clean and organized and look nice, but I don't really enjoy cleaning. So my wife loves to clean. And so there's a number of reasons why she's a very good partner for me. But one of them is because she's nuts. So she grew up in like the opposite house where like her mom is keeps such a clean, perfect house, like dinners on the table. And so that's what she learned. And she is like a minimalist, which I am not. I am a maximalist. I turned an entire room into my closet. Um, <laughs> but so we have a very good balance. And especially having four senior pets, she is like, she doesn't really work that much. And so she is like full-time keeping the house clean, cleaning up after the pets, bringing them to all their like vet appointments and stuff. I love that. That's like a match made in heaven, right? I just love- We really are. Yeah. And that's so fascinating. That's so cool. Children of hoarders. I don't think I've talked with the child of a hoarder. So, you know, and, and I know- you know, whoever is on my show, it is the divine right time for their story and for my listeners. So I know this is going to help a lot of people for sure. So I know that you went from college. Did you go directly from college to Asia where you were teaching English or sort of tell me, tell us that path? There was a little bit of time in between. So the person that I was dating at the time their family was in Long Island, like in the Hamptons. And so we, after college, I lived there and worked a very crappy restaurant job and saved money for Asia. I was 22 when I graduated from college and I couldn't get a job because I had majored in art and mud (laughs) and I didn't really have any useful job experience. And I, when everyone was doing internships, I was like, that's stupid. I'm not doing that. And then I was like, oh, this is why they did that because they all had jobs. (laughs) And so I found a job on Craigslist going door to door, raising money for the environment. And I applied and I think they called me like, Within 30 seconds. It was like (laughs) suspicious (laughs) because those are like very high turnover jobs. So they called me. I went in for an interview. The person who interviewed me is my now business partner. So amazing. Yeah. So I meet her for the first time. We spend the whole interview talking about cats and I get that job. It turns out I'm like really good at it, which is like, 
it's such a bizarre thing to be really good at and enjoy, but I loved knocking on doors. I was a really, really successful fundraiser. I ended up going from a Rhode Island office to Austin, Texas and reopening the Austin office, which had been closed for a few years with another field manager. And so I did that for about nine months. And then I was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. Cause it was, it's like very high burnout and high pressure. And I wanted to go to Asia. I had this vision of like living in Asia and I wasn't going to give up on it. So I ended up moving back from Austin and that's when I lived in New York and saved money. And then when I was 24, we moved to Taiwan. We being? Me and my partner at the time. Okay. Well, it's nice that you didn't go alone. <laughs> yeah, it was nice for the I most part. <laughs> If you're not seeing this on video, you may have not totally seen the slight hesitation. When I, said. I hear you, girl. I hear you. I hear you. We'll leave that be. So, so that's where you are when you get the news about your dad. So tell us what happened there. Yes. So I've been teaching for two years. I've been there for two years at that point. So I'm now 26 and I'm actually planning to leave. So I never wanted to stay in Taiwan forever. I was going to stay for a year, but then the first year kind of flies by and you're like just figuring it out and getting settled. So I was like, all right, we'll stay another year and then we'll leave. And so we were planning to go on this like multi-month backpacking trip once my contract ended, which was going to be in a couple months. And then after the backpacking trip around Asia, because like while we're here, we might as well, we were going to fly home and like start real life. And my partner at the time was going to go to a PhD program. And so that day, it was a Tuesday. I had had this day that I had been really excited about because I had a few different classes, but one of them was a class of these like really wild first grade, mostly boys. And they were like, one of them had done a drawing or something of like, he was like, it was like, he it wasn't graphic because it was a child's drawing, but he was like, it was about like killing a cat with an umbrella, like hitting it with an umbrella or something. And I'm a big animal lover. And I was like, no, 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 no. So I, I was working with the Taiwan SPCA because I was fostering cats for them. And I was like, hey, can you come in and like talk to these kids about how to treat animals because Taiwan is a little bit different than the US in terms of animal welfare. And so I had organized this thing. I had fundraised this money to pay them. I had been planning it for like over a month. And so that was the day that it finally happened. And like, it went so great. It was so cute. They like brought a little dog for the kids too to like interact with. And I was like, I remember being on the bus home to my apartment, like, I am making a difference in young <laughs> lives. Like feeling so good. Like, like these kids are going to be nicer to animals for the rest of their life. And like, I did it. So it was like this, like really nice high moment. And, and the majority of my teaching was just me being incredibly overwhelmed and sick and covered in marker and just like so stressed out. But this had been this like shining day of like, I'm making a difference. And so I check my phone as I'm like heading home from school and I have a text from my partner at the time that just says, I love you with no punctuation. Uh -oh. And like, I don't know if it's a millennial thing to be like, really like overemphasize the meaning of punctuation and emojis, but like, this was not a typical, like there should have, if it was just like, Hey, love you. Like there should have been an exclamation point. So I remember thinking oh, I hope somebody didn't die. And then his grandmother was like amazing, but like very old. And so I was like, well, someone did die. Like, hopefully it was like an old person. <laughs> I don't know why I had that thought, well, but, yeah. but I was like, I hope it's not my family basically, which is not nice, but that was just what flashed into my head. And so I get home and I had kind of forgotten about the text because I was like, I had that thought and then I sort of moved on. I get home, I open the door, I've got like my bag on my shoulder and I look at my partner and he's just like white as a sheet. Oh. It, it was like the energy was so weird. And so I was just like, hi. And so I'm like walking across the room to hang out my bag. 
And I'm like, what's going on? And he was like, you need to call your mom. And so my parents were still married at the time. So it would have been like, you need to call your parents. Right. Also, it's 5 a.m. their time. So like this is like so in my head, I'm like, I'm starting to panic because like this is bad. And so I'm starting to almost like bargain with myself of like, okay, but maybe it's not as bad as it could be. Right. Like I know it's bad, but maybe it's like serious injury bad, not like death bad. And so I'm like trying to get some hints and I'm like, well, like what happened? And he was just like, you need to call your mom. You need to call your mom, which was like the right call. But I was like, so I'm like fishing for some type of reassurance at this point. And I'm like, is it the worst thing that could possibly happen? And he didn't say no. And I was like, oh my God. And so I can feel like, I can feel it right now. So it's like everything started to go cold, like my face, my hands got cold and like clammy. It was like my skin was like tingling and I could feel like the panic. And I it was that walk across the apartment to the desk where my computer was to Skype my mom. It was like I didn't want to take the walk like I was just like. But I, there was, it was, it was like, at that point, it felt like there was this inevitability just pulling me forward. Like I was like, I have lost control of this situation. Like I am now at the mercy of whatever is happening right now. And so I Skype my mom and she answers right away. She's in not at home. I can tell from the background and bless her. She is not one to mince words. And so as soon as she picks up, I was like, Hey, what's going on? And she says, dad's dead. He killed himself. Oh, yeah. And like, I'm feeling, I'm just like having this full body experience here. It's a full body experience. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And it's so hard to describe it. Like you can feel it in your body, but it's hard to describe what's going through your head. So like my hands started to shake, like they were just like, my limbs were really cold. My stomach got really tight and my hands were shaking so hard that they were like, almost like hitting the desk. Like I've never had like uncontrollable shaking like that. And so it was interesting though, because I immediately went to like making sure that she was okay. Mm. And so I was like, okay, it's going to be okay. So I started like reassuring her because I don't want the other one to die, you know? So I'm like, it's going to be okay. Like, we're going to figure this out. Everything's going to be okay. And then I got off the phone with her. I called my boss, who was also my friend at the school and was like, I'm not coming into work anymore because my dad killed himself. And then I just like hung up. Like it was like the (laughs) most, she was just like, oh my God. And like, she was my friend too, but it was just like, I just clicked into into business mode. I went into business mode. And before this, I didn't know I had business mode. And so it was really, really interesting. Hmm. Yeah. And then it was like, okay, we need to move. We need to sell all our stuff and like go back. And We actually, so we had been planning this trip and they always say like, don't make decisions when you're grieving because you do like make some very strange decisions. And one of the decisions I made that was weird. I was like, we're going to go on the trip anyway. (laughs) And he's like, what? And I was like, not for the full thing, but I was like, we're here. I want to go on this trip because I know that once I get home, everything's going to be different and that's it. But like, I felt like I could maybe delay it. And because he was being cremated, there wasn't a rush to get home. I needed to stay in Asia a little bit longer to like get my taxes and stuff like that done anyway. And so we tied up loose ends. We sold everything. We got out of our lease. We went on this one month backpacking trip, which was like a nightmare. I just like cried myself across Asia. (laughs) Like it was, I spent a lot of money. Like, I don't know. I did get a picture of myself with a whale shark, but it was a disaster. And then we got home. Do you feel like you should have gone home or do you feel like it was therapeutic at some level or? No, I don't regret it. It just wasn't what you envisioned it to be. No, when I (laughs) planned the trip, there was a lot less crying. (laughs) 
But no, I don't regret it because I did because the house was hoarded and I had been planning before my dad died. I was like, I'm going to clean this fucking house. Like I, so I spent two years every day writing. I'm so happy and grateful for my parents clean house. I'm like researching house cleaners. So I'm like doing all this work and all this manifestation stuff around. Like I'm finally, because the house was like my Everest, like I'd been so ashamed of it. And I was like, no, you know what? I can do this. I'm going to clean this house. And so I knew that when I got home, not only would I be home for the first time in two years and dealing with my mom's grief, I have to clean the house and plan the memorial. Like it was a lot. So I don't regret just like taking that time to just like feel my feelings and be on a weird trip. And like everything went wrong on the trip because of course I was like manifesting bad things. So it's like, but no, I don't, it was a weird decision, but I don't regret it. Yeah. And, you know, when you talk about your experience, I noticed that you say your dad's house, that you cleaned your dad's house. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> okay. And which was, which kind of had me was wondering like, oh, were your parents still together? And, you know, you know, at the time. So when you came home and, you know, committed to cleaning the house, your mom was living in it. Yes. And usually I say my parents' house. So I find that really interesting yeah, that I'm saying my dad's. The show, like the episode on your show where you tell your story yeah. in the description, it's written as when Margie returned to her dad's house, completely broken, she found that the house was completely unlivable. That's interesting. I actually think someone from my team actually wrote that. <laughs> but But my dad was kind of the main culprit. They're both mm, not great with like stuff and organization, but like he was more, I think the culprit. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, first of all, holy shit, girl. I mean, what an experience. Yeah. Like when you step back from these kinds of things and you're just like, okay, universe, like, wow. So you had to be out of the country, like, you know, you were out of the country, you had to come home, you know, like there was all these you know, parts of the story you had already been thinking about that you wanted to clean that, you know, that you wanted to go home and support them and in, in cleaning the house. And then this catalyzing event just sped everything up into present. Yeah. The universe is crazy. The universe is crazy. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> so you spent five entire months cleaning every single day. Yes. Like waking up at like 5 a.m. and then just collapsing at the end of the day. I took one day off in five months and I'm not, that's not how I work in my business. Like I don't, I'm not a big fan of like the grind. I think part of being an entrepreneur is like you get some time freedom, but I've never grinded like this in my entire life. And it was partly because we were on this deadline of like, we were moving to Colorado so that my partner could go to this PhD program. So we had this hard deadline that it had to be complete by. And I think that was actually helpful, but it it condensed it so that it was like, I was up against this deadline working nonstop. Wow. Wow. Did it help with your grief? That's a great question. At the time, I felt like it did. And I think in a lot of ways it did, because I think it was very cathartic to be able to physically process his things and to be able to give this gift to my mom of a clean house where she could have people over and she could have support. And so, yes, I do think it was very healing for the most part and helpful with processing. The other side of that is because I threw myself into this big project, there was not a lot of space to just like feel the feelings. And so I did end up like, you're going to pay for it eventually. So I did end up once I left and went to Colorado and had no support system and no job. That was when everything caught up to me at the same time. But overall, I think it was a gift. And honestly, my dad was awesome. And it was an honor to be able to do that for him. Wow. That's a beautiful thing to be able to say. He was great. That's really wonderful. Grief is such a fascinating thing. And I obviously have a 
new appreciation for it. And I'm so interested in all of the things that affect what our grief journey is like, you know, a big part of that being the relationship with the person when they were living and how that was. And, you know, did you get to say goodbye or not? And obviously if it's tragic, all that type of stuff. So I'm just feel like such warmth in my heart to hear you say that because I just know probably the work you did to get to the place of just really being able to say that and just feel like clear and from love, you know, just feeling love. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I think like grief is love. I mean, it is, it's painful, but it's beautiful. And like, I actually, even while I was cleaning, I felt that way. It was just, yeah, I love my dad. And to learn that he was that unhappy, he was a great dad. And like, people have said things like, how could he do this to you? But it's like, I was adult, an adult, like he was done. He had done his, his job. And so while obviously it's not what I wanted, I support his right to make decisions for his own body and his own life. And I was happy to be able to like help in some small way by just kind of getting everything in order. Yeah. Beautiful. So we know that there is a happy ending to the story, even though you're it's far from ending, <laughs> but there is a, a a current happy scenario that you are living with, you know, a really successful company that helps people, you know, book podcasts. So worth mentioning, uh, given the context we're in now and you're married and, you know, like, so how do you feel like all of what you've talked about, which is your life, how do you think it contributes to you now as an entrepreneur, as a wife, you know, as an, a freaking adult? <laughs> yes, as a freaking adult. I mean, I truly like wouldn't be here without that stuff. I, I don't think that my success in business would have been possible if I hadn't gone through what I went through losing my dad, I think I like needed to kind of lose everything in that way to have the resilience and to rebuild as this version of myself that I knew I wanted to be, but I didn't know how to get there from where I was. And I truly believe that the things that feel like your biggest weaknesses are your superpowers. And for me, like, yes, it was not great having such delicate mental health and so many mental health issues. But because of that, I've done so much work. I've done so much trauma processing because I had to, I couldn't just fake it. Right. Cause it was so severe, but because of that, I'm like rock solid now. Like I've done so much work. I'm so resilient. And so I'm able to show up as a leader. I'm able to deal with anything that happens and be like, all right, we'll figure it out. And it's truly worth it to me to have gone through all of that to get to this place. And it makes us, I think, a compassionate leader. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So in the business that you're CEO now of, you started at a $15 an hour contractor job. Was this another, you know, door-to-door success story? You just like realize that, that you just like kick ass at this and you were acknowledged for it or how did that path happen? Yeah. So Jess, who interviewed me at Clean Water Action when I was 22, and then I like left that job and was like, bye, which is, I don't know if she really appreciated that, but we stayed (laughs) in touch. When my dad died, I posted on Facebook from Taiwan because I like my cats were there. They had a bunch of pets. I needed people to come pick up pets because my mom wasn't able to live at the house. She was staying with her friend until I got home. And Jess was someone who was like, her cat had just died. And she was like, yeah, I'll come pick up a cat. And so Jess adopted my dad's cat, Kitten, who she still has. Kitten is like 18 now. Mm. <laughs> and and so we reconnected. And then I, because we were reconnected over that, Facebook showed me her post and she posted something about hiring a part-time $15 an hour contractor. And at that time, I was in Colorado making $11 an hour at a jewelry store and I was miserable. And I was like, great. Like working from home is all I want. I don't care that, you know, I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills and I'm not going to have health insurance. Like this sounds great. 
And then I did like through getting to know my clients and listening to their interviews on podcasts, really fell in love with entrepreneurship and was learning a lot. So everything I heard them say that I didn't know what it was, I would Google it. So I was like, what is B2B? What is SEO? What's a merger? Like all of these things in 2016, like teaching myself and learning from them. And then when my relationship fell apart, because I had all this unprocessed grief and was like a nightmare of a partner at that point, (laughs) I moved home. So I went to live with my mom, which was like a new rock bottom, but because it was a remote job, I could keep working for interview connections. And I became the first employee of the company in 2017, which was interesting because I didn't want to be an employee. I wanted to be a business owner, but I knew it was a step forward. So I did it. And then really with everything I had learned from the house clean and project managing that and hiring a team for that, and this newfound like self-confidence of like, I can do anything. I came into this young business with that, with a vision to like, we can scale this. And I felt very strongly we were doing 2017, we did about $400,000 in revenue. And I was like, we can go to a million in revenue in a year. Here's how I like laid out my plan. I asked for 50% equity. I got it. We fell short of a million the next year, but we we were at like 850. So we did double. And then we had our first million dollar year the next year. Amazing. Good for you. That's so awesome. I love that. That's one of the things I love about entrepreneurship is that we're in charge, right? Like if we get the bug up our butt that we want to create a certain result, it's a kind of funny way to say it, but all the expressions were going through my head and that's the one I chose. You know, like if we get a fire in our belly, you know, we can create whatever it is that we want. Like we can, and we can be recognized for it, you know, from somebody that has their eyes wide open to what's in front of them. And I've, always hold the space for my daughter to have that kind of experience. And up to this point, she's like, entrepreneurship, no, you know, like, don't talk to me. It's almost like, (laughs) it's kind of funny. It's like ironic, like she's pressured to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) And like my dad worked for AT&T for like 30 years and I didn't even know what entrepreneur was, but now she's going to be a designer in business school so she can create businesses from scratch. And I'm so excited that that's oh, where cool. winding up. She'll, she'll be going to college in the fall. So I just love the story. I love that you, you know, that Jess saw what she, you know, really saw what she had and, you know, gave you that opportunity and you quantum leaped, you know, like there's so many times where we feel like we're wasting time or we missed our shot or, we're, you know, dragging our feet or, or, you know, all, all of this stuff. And I've, I have to remind myself of this, (laughs) but often I see how I just do things at the speed that I meant to do them. And then the quantum leap happens. And so somehow I quote unquote, like catch up or like, you know, it was divine right time. Like it didn't matter that I did it incrementally. I just like get there somehow. And I'm having one of those experiences right now that we're going to see if it actually, you know, there's some kind of fun experience happening right now that's similar to that. And it's happened to me like three or four times before. So that's awesome to hear. It really is like that. And it's like literally years of like, this is so slow, this isn't happening. And then a year where you have 10 years of progress in one year and you're like, oh, okay. And that is like the mental game of staying consistent. I've been getting really into TikTok and it's like the same on TikTok. You stay consistent and you post, I'm posting three videos a day and the quality's there and it'll be like nothing, 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 nothing. And then a video will pop off and I'll get 10,000 new followers. And it's just like, it's such a microcosm, I think of life, especially as an entrepreneur, like it can feel like you're just crawling towards something and you're never going to get there. And then all of that consistent effort compounds and you're right place, right time. And then it just happens so fast. Yeah. So you started a freaking podcast in 2021 about death. (laughs) And I love the name of it. We get it, comma, your dad died. What, what inspired you to do that? I started doing a lot of podcast interviews. So getting booked on a ton of podcasts to 
promote interview connections. And obviously it's important that we actually use the strategy that we're selling. (laughs) And it just kept coming up because it was such a huge piece of my entrepreneurial journey that even shows that like weren't really supposed to be about death started becoming about death on my interview. And a lot of people reached out to me and said how much it meant to me And a lot of like high-performing, high-achieving entrepreneurs reached out and it turned out that grief had been such a big part of their journey as well. And they were like, I never talk about this. Thank you so much. And so it just sort of unfolded naturally because of that. And so I decided to start a podcast so I could interview high-achieving entrepreneurs about death and about like a profound loss and the gifts that they got from it. And it was one of those things where there wasn't like a clear monetization path. It was really just a passion project that I just felt like I wanted to have these conversations and I felt like they would help other people. So I did it. That's essentially how my podcast was born. There was not a clear monetization path. It was like, I need to help entrepreneurs get fucking real about about how their struggle serves a purpose and that, that it's normal. And we have all had trauma and that's what makes us great. And, you know, so let's talk <laughs> and I'll yeah. figure out the rest later. So I, I relate to that and I'm glad you did. I, I think the grieving entrepreneur is highly underrepresented and we have unique and a unique experience because we're, you know, in charge of our businesses and that particularly like, you know, like in my case where a lot of my experiences and 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 how I do life is part is in my work, you know, is part of how I support others. So it becomes a, a multi-holographic experience when you're grieving. So I'm glad you're doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. So what is your final contribution to the audience from the world and the mind of Margie Feldhun? Well, I really love your your pillar of like trusting that your struggle serves your purpose or your mission. I think that is so huge because the world is a traumatic place. <laughs> like trauma is just a natural part of life. Like contrast, there's going to be a variety of experiences and it's so much easier to get through those hard times when you realize that every struggle truly is fueling your purpose and helping you serve others in a deeper way. And so I think that would be my my biggest like piece of advice. Thank you for bringing that up. We're talking about GFR commandment number five, no, number four, number four, trust that your struggle serves your mission. And, you know, each commandment has a confession question. And when we came up with the confession questions, well, first of all, I just like to have people have something to like, you know, be introspective about. But this one is the longest one because it explores what's happening now and also what's happened in the past. And does that have meaning? So it says, how will what I learned from this struggle serve me and my clients? How have past struggles served me? Because sometimes we need that reminder, like, oh, yeah, that horrible thing that happened really turned out to be a wonderful thing. And maybe this can too. So, yeah, yeah. I yeah. appreciate you bringing that up. Of course. Yeah. And I think it, it's about what you value, too. I think if you value having a an easy, smooth life over everything, you're going to have a lot more added suffering. But if you can value growing as a human being and personal development above everything else, then I think it's easier even in the moment to appreciate the struggles, even as you're lamenting. For sure. Yes. Amen. For sure. This has been a delight. Thank you, Margie. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Oh my gosh. How fun was that? That was so fun. So you heard that Margie's GFR commandment fave is number four, trust your struggle serves your mission. If you haven't gotten your 12 GFR commandments, the roadmap for getting real, you definitely want to go over and get those. They are super enlightening, thought provoking. They will hit you right between the eyes. It's not a 12 step program. (laughs) You just use one at a time. So go over at 
gfr.life forward slash 12C to get your GFR commandments. And to hang out with Margie, she is a TikTok sensation, TikTok a fashionista. I don't know. I'm coming up with all kinds of funny words, but she really enjoys TikTok. She has a lot of fun over there and she really teaches awesome things. So she does a, a bonus session for our GFR squad called Nervous System Regulation for Entrepreneurs, How to Maximize Rest and Rejuvenation. And over on TikTok, she shares, well, she shares about her self-harming background, about her, you know, her parents, she her mental health. And she has a lot of fun over there. So if you're a TikTok person, you want to go hang out with her over there or go to margie.com. And she did a really great bonus lesson on, like I said, the nervous system that you, if you're in the GFR squad, you get to check it out. It's right. It's already in the Facebook group waiting for you. And if that interests you and you want to hang out with me and the GFR squad gang once a month, talking about one of the GFR commandments and getting some goodies sent to you, like a sticker and a button and all that kind of stuff, then join the GFR squad. It's only $20 a month and you can cancel anytime. So it's worth just checking out if you've ever thought about it. So you go to gfr.life forward slash squad for the commandments, gfr.life forward slash 12C. And of course, these links are in the show notes and be sure to subscribe so that you can be comforted by the other, the stories of struggle and trauma and know that your struggle and trauma is totally on purpose and is serving you and your business and your life. Until next time, over and out for now.